Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 138 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a man who the Los Angeles Times has described as, quote, the American face of science, close quote, an astrophysicist who splits his time between serving as the director of the Hayden Planetarium, a staple of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and serving as the host of the hugely popular podcast and TV series Star Talk, the first ever talk show based on science, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Maybe more than anyone else in history, Dr. Tyson has figured out how to make science exciting to people who are not scientists. This has been a major focus of his life over the two-plus decades since he went to work at the American Museum of Natural History, during which he has not only been a highly respected academic, but has also become a charismatic and revered fixture on television, most prominently as a talking head on variety shows and as a host of PBS's Nova Origins and Nova Science Now educational programs, Fox's reboot of the landmark Cosmos series that Carl Sagan had hosted 34 years earlier, and of Star Talk, which has existed in various forms since 2009, including as a National Geographic TV series since 2015. For his TV efforts, the 58-year-old husband and father of two has received four Emmy nominations thus far. In 2014 for Cosmos, in the category of Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series. In 2015 for Star Talk, in the category of Outstanding Informational Series or Special and for Hubble's Cosmic Journey in the category of Outstanding Narrator, and in 2016 for Star Talk in the category of Outstanding Informational Series or Special. He is widely tipped to land a fifth Emmy nomination this summer, once again for Star Talk in the category of Outstanding Informational Series or Special. And perhaps this time he will prevail over CNN's Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, which has edged them out the two previous times he competed in that category. Over the course of our conversation in Dr. Tyson's office at the American Museum of Natural History, he and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a visit at the age of nine to the very Hayden Planetarium that he now runs set him on the journey that he has followed, how he first crossed paths with Dr. Carl Sagan, a man who made science accessible to the masses in much the same way that Tyson subsequently has and who showed him tremendous kindness, How being an African-American interested in the sciences has been received by others over the years. How he came to understand the effectiveness of using short and amusing sound bites, whether on TV or Twitter, and interaction with people famous for things unconnected to science to make complicated ideas about science digestible for the masses. Why, despite the election of Donald Trump and the anti-science worldview held by much of the Trump administration, he has never been more optimistic about the future of science and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Dr. Tyson, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, please call me Neil. Okay, thank you. We always begin just with the basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? That's how we always begin. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's nosy of you. (laughs) I was born and raised in New York City, specifically the Bronx. Yes. Went through the public schools, K through 12 right on through the Bronx High School of Science. And both my parents were very much into improving the condition of those who disenfranchised, less fortunate. And so my father was active in the civil rights movement because that's how old I am. And my mother would ultimately go back to school when she was empty nest and get a degree in gerontology. So she studied aging 
and the aged. So here's my father, a sociologist, thinking about the human condition, my mother thinking about aging, and here's their son, the astrophysicist. <laughs> so I, 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 I kept nicely grounded because yes, of that. Yes. I didn't float away too far. No. Yeah. And as far as, you know, what first piqued your interest in the sciences, my understanding was that it actually comes back to this very site, right? Yeah, yeah. So I went to my local planetarium, mm -hmm. the Hayden Planetarium yes. of New York City, and that's where I became starstruck from age nine. And now I'm the director of the facility. Yes. Now, that story, I think it, it plays better in small towns, but I tell people in New York, and they, they don't care. Okay. I'm ready for the Oh, isn't that? And they just, yeah, go on. Anything else you could <laughs> The hometown kid comes back, does good right. story. It, I don't know. New York, they just don't care. Cynical people. Yeah, it's yes. completely <laughs> cynical. What was it, though, if you can take yourself back to that, your mindset on that day, what, what was it that impressed you? I wonder, had I been raised on a farm mm -hmm. in rural America where the night sky would have always been there anytime I'd walked out on the porch, it would have been the nighttime wallpaper. But that's not what happened. I grew up in a city where there is no night sky. I grew up in a time when there was not only light pollution and tall buildings where your sight lines get interrupted, but also there was air pollution. Back then, all apartment buildings burned their trash. They all had incinerator rooms. And that put soot into the air on a level where I would walk to school, elementary school, and when I got to school, you would brush off the ash from your shoulder with the back of your hand. And... That's how old I am. See, look at you. You're thinking, damn, this guy's older. He's from the Industrial Revolution, the 19th century. What? So not ever knowing what the proper night sky should look like, walking into a planetarium with the lights dimming and having the stars come out is a stunning psycho-emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And it enabled me to be struck by the stars, whereas... If I'd only ever known the sky to be that way, there's no way to get struck by them. Right. It's just, yeah, that's my back porch. Why did I pay <laughs> $20 to come into the museum to see it? Absolutely. So when I first saw the night sky, I was pretty convinced it was a hoax, the, the Hayden Planetarium night sky, because <laughs> I'd seen the night sky from the Bronx, and it had a couple of dozen stars in it. That right. was it. And here there was countless thousands. And only later would I realize that, in fact, it is the real sky. Yeah. But... What lingers within me is the this sense that if I go to the finest observatory sites on the highest mountains in the remote parts of the world, I look up and I see the sky and I more often than not say to myself, it reminds me of the Hayden Planetary. From that, from that day when you were nine, yeah. <laughs> two years after that, only two years after that, there was another big event looking skywards, which was the lunar landing. And I wonder how much you remembered or, or, or cared about that when it happened? Was that a big thing for I you? cared about it like everyone else did, yeah. but not in any special way. Yeah. The moon was very a very close object as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. By then, my interest in the universe was already cemented. And when I think of the universe, I think of stars, galaxies, mm -hmm. the Big Bang, the large-scale structure of the universe, and they only went to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and you were already that aware of the big picture? Oh, yeah. Well, that, well there are even bigger pictures to become aware of, yep. but I was, that picture for sure. Wow. It's one of the first things you invest time in, getting a sense of your place in the universe and yep. why some scales of time and space and size are truly astronomical. Mm -hmm. You learn how and why that word 
has become an adjective. Yeah. And I, I was reading one article that referenced the fact that you would just kind of go off, I guess, probably not long after that first visit here, you'd go off on your own to the Hayden and to this museum just to explore or take classes or Yeah, whatever. that's a great point to make here. Mm -hmm. Typically, in the first visit to a museum, you, you read the exhibits, you, you get bored maybe, and you want to go home and get a sandwich. But I was taken by the topic. And so after you see the base exhibits, you come back, but wait, there's more. There are programs, there are educational programs, there's scientific programs. There's the Amateur Astronomy Association that m has meetings here with a lecture series. So I could continually feed this hunger by the extended programming portfolio of the institution. Now, only because television has now become a part of your life, I wonder if television was if there was anything on television that that appealed to you at that time, whether it might have been Lost in Space or Star Trek or The Twilight Zone or any of that stuff, where, was there anything that was smart enough, well well done enough to hold the interest of somebody who was already thinking on a pretty deep level about this stuff? Yeah, I dream a genie. <laughs> <laughs> really? That was yeah. your... So I, thought, I, I kept saying, I want a genie too. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. He was an astronaut, of course, and there's a genie serving the astronaut. So I just thought that was just I was I was intrigued by her power. Yeah. And one of the most powerful things she did, which I don't think people fully recognized, was in one episode, Major Healy comes up to to Major Nelson to go out to play golf. It's on like a Saturday. Okay? Saturday it was a weekend day, I think it was a Saturday. And Major Nelson says Oh, I love it. It's a beautiful morning. I love playing golf. I wish every day was Saturday. And then he walks out, and then Jeannie says, hmm. And then she blinks and makes every day Saturday, okay? <laughs> the next morning, Major Hill shows up to play golf again, and all of this plays back. And then they realize, Jeannie, you can't do that. Why did you? And ask yourself, what does it take to make every day the same day of the week? You have to go inside everyone's brain. Because the day of the week is a completely artificial construct, right? You're not making the sun rise twice in a day. Right, right. That's a physical change. Of the, the day of the week, we just all agree, right? We're recording this on right, a Friday right. because we agree that this should be Friday. Right, right, right. <laughs> all right? So I just thought that was, that was stunningly powerful. And how but, old were you when you had this thought? Maybe 12, 12 or 13, <laughs> right. But, but anyhow, other shows, definitely Twilight Zone. Right. Oh, to this day, I think there's nothing like it. Had great yeah. direction, directing, and 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 uh, it was in black and white, yeah. so shadows meant something. Yeah. In black and white, the shadow was a character unto itself, and many of the shows involved the birth of space. Yeah, and the trials and tribulations that the, the space. Invaders, the invader. The invader. Yeah, yeah. In fact, on my desk somewhere in there, I have a little miniature model of the invader so. <laughs> <laughs> well and so what what you liked about that was just that it was in a way asking questions that challenge the conventional thinking or well no it's, it's bigger than that it's yep. the invader people don't remember it it's a, an, a woman living alone in a farmhouse in the agnes moorhead yeah. it was and her home gets invaded by this mini this miniature but deadly machine and it's some kind of machine that's like attacking her. And 
The whole show is her freaking out about this. Just trying to stab it with a knife and a rolling pin and all right. the stuff that you find in the kitchen right. of a farmhouse. And at the end, I, I don't mind giving it. Yeah, yeah. Here. spoiler at, alert. At the end, you you zoom in on this little this little machine, and it's a little spaceship, and it and it says NASA, NASA, we've got to leave quickly. There's a monster on <laughs> right, this planet right. that's attacking us, and <laughs> so that is a, an inversion of perspective. Yeah, that studying the universe tends to be good at. There's a tendency, especially when people are kids, to lump them into groups. These are the the cool kids. These are the jocks. These are the nerds. You, from what I've read, sort of defied easy placement. Well, yeah, I think that hits its peak in high school. Yeah. Where you start dividing people up. Yeah. So I was captain of my school's wrestling team, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was also in the physics club. <laughs> 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 and plus, I, I studied martial arts just as a kind of a hobby. Mm-hmm. So, but I was also a proud nerd, which we, we referred to ourselves back then. <laughs> right. So if someone wanted to sort of give a nerd a wedgie, so I, I imagine myself having superpowers, and the superpower would be, I would be the protector of nerds world over. <laughs> so if I heard that some football jock was abusing right. a nerd by hanging them up by their wedgie yeah, underwear, yeah, yeah. I would then show up and kick some ass, okay? <laughs> because I knew that I could. Right. And I had the power to and the knowledge, and I'd be protecting those who would be endangered yeah, yeah. by by the cool kids who yeah. were sort of physically fit. But yeah, I did straddle those camps. It was not as hard to do so in my high school, which was the Bronx High School of Science. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bronx High School of Science had geeks and jocks even within its own world, but that entire scale is shifted towards the geeks. So there yeah. were the Bronx science geeks are really, really, They're really geeks. <laughs> Revenge and of the, the geeks. And yeah. the Bronx science jocks are yeah. geek jocks. Okay? <laughs> just for context right, here. Right, right, right. It's just a shifted scale. Right. But everyone's still divided out. And they were the cheerleaders and, you know, the cool ones and the weird ones. And the, and back then, we didn't have vocabulary for being on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there were surely many people who we just thought of as antisocial, right. but we're just simply somewhere there. Yeah. yeah. So at at that time in your life, when you're, I'm sure, figuring out what are, what's the long term plan, where am I going to go to college, what what sorts of things do I want to pursue with my life? Who was the Neil deGrasse Tyson for you? Who was the person that maybe you could look to as a as a example, or who you did look to as an example of sort of something to aspire to in the sciences? Was there anybody there in no. the public? No. So that question presumes there was such a person, and therefore, who is that person? Mm-hmm. So for me, my ambitions were guided purely by an interest in the universe. Mm-hmm. So it was not a person there. It was the Hayden Planetarium. Mm-hmm. It was not a teacher. It was not a person. It was this institution. Because, in fact, you had said in, a, in another context that in some ways you found your direction in spite of school not because of it right? oh right right there is no teacher k through 16 yeah right k through 12 right up through college that right. would have if you said tell me about tyson way right. back none of them would have said oh i knew at the time that he'll go far <laughs> none of them would have said this why is that because they i wasn't their model student think, of, think about what a model student was yeah. back then and perhaps still is now right it means you're not disruptive <laughs> you obey the teacher mm-hmm. and you get high grades okay I was disruptive. (laughs) 
I listen to the teacher most of the time, but not all the time, right? right? And my grades were like, okay. So I'm not the one that everyone says is going to go far. And the odd thing is, the greatest shakers and movers society has ever seen are not the ones that got straight A's. Right. Just go down the list. There's Michael Dell. Some of them like were kicked out of college or right. left college, right? Or didn't go to college. You look at, at James Cameron, who has two of the top ten highest grossing films of all time. I think he barely got out of high school mm -hmm. and might have done some community college. <laughs> and that's it. Mm -hmm. You look at his resume and it's not... He did okay in spite of not going to college. Mm -hmm. No, he kicked your ass. <laughs> all right? So, so this idea that you have to obey, get the high grades, and do everything a teacher says, to believe that that is the measure of who will succeed, I think is missing the mark. But doesn't the American school system at least make it, or the American system overall, make it difficult for somebody who isn't well-rounded to overcome that? Because if you're not getting great grades all around, and you're not going and getting a great SAT score or whatever, it does make it harder to do other things along the way, doesn't it? But initially, but if you keep at it and you're committed and you're devoted, yeah. it'll uh, people will find you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My role model was or sort of assembled a la carte. Okay. So my parents had a good sense of moral fiber. Mm -hmm. They were caring individuals about others. Had a little piece of that. Here at the, where we're doing this, interview at the mm -hmm. American Museum of Natural History, where I came as a kid, there were educators and scientists. The ed there were educators. I said, wow, if I'm ever an educator, I want that facility with communication. I want that level of, of humor and joy in, in sharing knowledge. And I saw a scientist who had such expertise. I said, maybe one day I'll know as much as they do. So my role model was a stapled together assembly mm -hmm. Of bits and pieces of other people. I would later meet Carl Sagan, who's highly accomplished. But I, my interest in the universe happened independently of my knowledge of his existence. Right. One of the colleges I applied to was Cornell. Yes. Unbeknownst to me, the admissions office forwarded my application to him for his commentary. And that brings us to the December 20th, 1975, right? <laughs> exactly. This is a, so what, what happened on so that So he sent me a handwritten, I mean, hand-signed letter right. inviting me to come to Cornell to observe the campus and to see if I want to go there. And I said, what? It's Carl Sagan. Who is, is this? Is this the Carl Sagan? <laughs> the one, back then, he hadn't yet done Cosmos, the right. series. Right. But he was already famous with best-selling books. He was on The Tonight Show. One of the first and only scientists to make that a thing right. to do. So, yeah, I, I went up. <laughs> and he gave me a tour. He signed a book to me, which this I This is a Saturday. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's Saturday. Yeah, no, but it's no. And plus, it was kind of over the holiday, so nobody's there. And so the campus is not even running. And he invested time in me, which I found stunning for someone of that fame to spend time with someone of my anonymity. And right on down to when it was time to go back home. This is December. It was cold. It's Ithaca. It was snowing. And he, he we go back to the bus station for me to come back to New York City. And he says, if the bus doesn't come through, it's about a five-hour ride. If the bus doesn't come through, here is my home phone. Call it up, and you can spend the night with my family and leave tomorrow. It's like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. I said, if I'm ever as famous as Carl Sagan, I'm going to be 
sensitive to the needs and requests and ambitions of the next generation of students just as he was with me. So you didn't end up going to Cornell, though. Oh, but I didn't go to Cornell. But you <laughs> did you ever, in hindsight, especially as Cosmos and other things, basically came along and were examples of him doing what it seems like you have made a, a central cause of your life, which is making, I think, science and complex scientific things understandable and accessible and interesting to people who are not necessarily predisposed to being interested in those things. Did you ever kind of regret not continuing on with him at Cornell? No, because the reasons that I chose to not go to Cornell, I ended up going to Harvard. Mm -hmm. And the reasons had nothing to do with what you might think. Oh, Harvard, you got to go right, to Harvard. Right, you right. get into Harvard, you got to go to No, I didn't give a rat's ass <laughs> that it was Harvard. What I cared about is how much astrophysics happens in that place. And not many people know this, but at the time, again, I'm in high school, I'd subscribe to Scientific American. And these are articles written on interesting science topics by scientists, not by journalists. Mm -hmm. And one of its features is a section called About the Authors. And there it tells you where the author went to school, got their bachelor's, master's, PhD, and where they were on the faculty. So I gathered several years of Scientific American and made a table of all the articles that related to the universe and made a checklist of where those authors <laughs> got their degrees and where they were found. And when I was done, the list for Harvard was two or three times that of any other institution that had accepted me. And I said, well, if this is a measure right. of success in the field, then this answers my question. Post-Harvard, not to rush through those years, but post-Harvard, you began post-grad work at University of Texas at Austin. Mm -hmm. Just as an aside, I believe they, they pay you to do post-grad work, right? Yeah, in astrophysics and some other fields. And that's right. Other. Well, it's not that they simply pay you. It's that you, in addition to your your graduate work, you are serving as a teaching assistant right. for classes for which students give tuition. So, But not, not a ton. They don't no, pay. No, it's definitely not a ton. And in fact, did you contemplate other lines well, of it work? Was, it was very tough making ends meet. And... I, by the way, in addition to wrestling, I also danced. Mm -hmm. I was on three different performing dance companies at different times over those years. College, not the Bolshoi, but right, right. college <laughs> troops. Right. And, but it was fun. I liked being in dancing shape, uh, being able to do a full split, mm -hmm. this sort of thing. It's strength, agility, and grace mm -hmm. all in one. Because mm -hmm. wrestling was just strength and agility, but you add grace to it. Oh, my gosh. You're, you're in a, your body is a machine that performance machine and some of my fellow dancers made extra money by dancing at a at a male strip club for women and it was like they, they invited me down it because i needed i was and i said it's kind of not, well, all right so i go down there just to observe <laughs> just to observe right and they came out he's so my fellow dancers yeah yeah came out with asbestos line jock straps <laughs> that had been soaked in lighter fluid and ignited on fire, Ugh. and they came out dancing to Jerry Lee Lewis's Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> so I said, nope. No. Mm, nope. I'd rather starve. Maybe I'd be a math tutor. Right, right. And I'm so embarrassed that it took watching someone's testicles on fire 
<laughs> for me to think to myself, I should be a math tutor. Right. Because I knew I could have been a math tutor. I could have come up with that decision two hours earlier right, than that. Right, right, right. Without having to witness this. <laughs> but, but it was, it's, you know, Sometimes you get shocked moment. into reality. Yes. Right. And so I, I tutored math for a couple of years. And, and eventually transferred to finish the PhD at Columbia. Yeah, correct. I didn't finish the PhD at uh, UT Austin. It was Columbia. Before even getting the PhD, you published your first book. Yeah, I did. Yeah, thank that, you. That can't be that common a thing. No, it's not. But it's uh, it was a question and answer book. Okay, all right. Compiled from a question and answer column that I had sustained for several years up to then, and I figured there's enough there for a whole book, so I, just, I got a book published. But you were a you were an outstanding enough student that you were invited to speak at at the convocation and. You actually the PhD I, convocation. PhD yeah. convocation, and and some of what you said, I I gather, had people maybe a little squirming in their seats. And if I can just synopsize, please correct me if I get it wrong. But mm-hmm. basically, by your count, with your graduation, the number of black astrophysicists in the country was now seven of roughly four thousand. And you said, "quote Given what I have experienced, I'm surprised there are that many." Close quote. What? In terms of, of race, how had you experienced that led you to say that? Was it, was it truly that bad? So I would later learn that it wasn't, I wasn't the seventh. I might have been like the tenth. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Someone gave me some names I had missed. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just as a kid, knowing early from age nine I wanted to study the universe, you'd be surprised how resistive society is if they don't have a way to see you in that role. They saw me in an athletic role, because I was athletic. They saw me in a performance role, because they see black performers. So they had a stereotype. And it's not an overt, explicit stereotype. It's an implicit one. It's like imagining women only as secretaries, or as, in the day, stewardesses. Mm-hmm. You, you, there's a bias there. And you think you're doing someone a favor by saying, oh, you could be one of the best secretary there ever was. Well, maybe I want to be the boss. Mm-hmm. Is that option even available in your in your choices? Mm-hmm. Apparently not. So you just look at the trajectory of resistive forces, and they're you know some are it, it, it feels like a steeplechase. In this place, there's a puddle you'll jump in, and then in another place, there's a a hurdle. But my eye was on the destination, and I made sure that my fuel tank was fully stocked. <laughs> so that whatever was thrown at me, I could climb over it, right. walk around it, dig under it. So. so after that, you you become a postdoc at Princeton. That's where the, I, I think, your earliest. Is that where also you, I know one of the things you did that was very ahead of its time was, was declaring that Pluto was not in your oh. estimation of planet. Is that where that happened? That was, because let's just say, it took until 2006 for the, for the uh, International Astronomical right. Union to agree with that. To agree, yeah. They, we did it in the year 2000. Okay. So the we is, while I was at Princeton, Yeah. Uh, in the few years after my postdoc, I had a joint appointment between Princeton and here, okay. the American Museum of okay. Natural History. And that's where we started laying down the exhibit guidelines for the new facility, one of which was organizing Pluto in a different place, hmm. putting it with other icy brethren in the outer solar system. Yeah. And we got raked over the coals for that. I mean, New York Times had a page one headline. (laughs) Pluto, not a planet, only in New York. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, Hate mail started coming in from third graders. Right. 
And I didn't know they had such emotion. <laughs> They're just kids. Such a connection to Pluto. <laughs> well, I think they had just finished memorizing right. the planets in order, and I somehow destroyed. You removed the pizzas. From removed the, the pizza. <laughs> a very educated mother just served us right, a lot of pizza. Right. I have letters from kids saying, without Pluto, now what's my mother going to serve me? <laughs> it's like, okay, how about this? Nachos. Exactly. My very educated mother just served us nachos. Right. We're good. Um, but meanwhile, Princeton is also what, in some ways, led you to being here, right? In a in a employed capacity. Well, it's a transition from you go to a postdoc to a more permanent job, and that's that's all that was. But was there the, basically this place is looking for a new director? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So they for someone to oversee the new facility and its and its changes because we're rebuilding mm -hmm. the planetarium that I grew up in, right? Turning into a quarter billion dollar facility, two hundred fifty million dollars. So. Um, yeah, so the, the, the trustees of the museum visited nearby institutions, Columbia, NYU, Princeton, exploring what the faculty there thinks about their plan and whether they can recommend someone to lead it. And they went to Columbia, and Columbia said, yeah, this is Guy Tyson who was just here, got his PhD. Mm -hmm. He'd be good to lead it. Then they go to Princeton, and... They said, who would be good to lead? And they said, this guy, Tyson, who just published a book. Right. Right? So he doesn't have to tell you he's committed to this. He's got a book. He's mm -hmm. got a, public, a popular level book. Mm -hmm. So my name came up in both places. And so starting in 96, you were in the job that, you're, that you still exactly. hold. Exactly. And, and at that time, though, were you even imagining, was there even a desire to be a public figure in the way that you've become? The idea no. of being a, a television personality familiar to people who have no other connection to science for instance right no wasn't even on the radar no so no. Th that really began i guess with with nova well still to this day if yeah. i had my choice yeah if you say what are the top 20 things you would do in a day right interacting with the public would not be in that top 20 really right it, nor even uh being interviewed by the press it'd be like no, and Maybe I top fifty. Mean it in that way. Yeah, no, no, well, no. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah, why. No, yeah. but this is this is an unorthodox yeah. posture. Right. I want to just be sure. make it clear what's yeah, yeah. going on in me. Yeah. For this, if I were to rank it, I would say first I would I enjoy writing. Mm -hmm. I enjoy making popcorn with slightly too much butter <laughs> on it and sitting on the couch and watching movies right. with family. I like going to the theater at night. I like wine tastings, art openings, this sort of thing. I love it all. So I don't wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to bring science to the public today? Right. That's, non, that's a non-thought. Right. And so what happens is I'm a servant of the public's interest. The universe flinches. The news headquarters want to respond, and they send up a, a camera. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I happily accommodate the request. But why do they I, send it's a it, duty. Why do they send it to you? Instead of the you know anyone else, which... that's a great question. And I think I think I know the minute where this began. Okay, nineteen ninety-five. Okay, Dateline nineteen ninety-five, <laughs> New York. The first exoplanet is discovered. Planet orbiting another star. Great banner headlines. They send up a a camera. They say we'd like to speak with the director. They don't know my name from that, but they director. I got title. Right. And they ask me about how we discovered how my colleagues discovered this new planet. And I said, well, the planets don't orbit their host star. The planet and the host star orbit one another's 
center of mass. So the star has a little bit, a bit, little bit of jiggle motion within it. And I was demonstrating this, and I went on and on talking about the Doppler effect. I run home that night, and the only thing that's on the evening news is me shaking my head. <laughs> to right? jiggle to, effect. To, to me jiggling the star. <laughs> and I said, oh, they don't want my professorial reply. Right. They want a sound bite. Mm-hmm. They want to come to me for something that fits in their universe. And so I said to myself, let me work on the sound bite. And what is a sound bite? It's like a information that's tasty, interesting, and informative, maybe a little bit funny, make mm-hmm. you smile a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I started practicing it because I didn't, I didn't, they, because all that showed up on the evening news was me jiggling my hips. Right. So that was their soundbite. Right. Why don't I only give them soundbites from now on? And that was, they figured it out. And that's what it was. And then they kept coming back. Why? I thought you, it would get rid of them, but it just made them come back. <laughs> made them come back all, all the more. I mean, I guess in some ways that, that answers the question that I was going to ask next, which is why for so many people do their eyes glaze over when they even just hear the word science, let alone, is it because it's just... I think that's an earlier generation. Yeah. I think anyone 30 and under, their eyes don't glaze over. Okay. They all have smartphones. They only know life in the presence of a smartphone. Mm -hmm. So they recognize the role of science and technology and space in getting their cell phone to work. I think that next generation, I can't wait till they're old enough to become heads of agency and heads of state and just not old enough for that yet. But don't you think they're also in some ways the product in the best sense of folks like yourself, Bill Nye, others who took these very complex ideas that in some ways were... Bill Nye's tenure of influence perfectly coincides with this age group. That's correct. So it may be, uh, I should ask him about that, what he thinks. Interesting. Whether he single-handedly shaped the scientific ambitions of an entire generation. <laughs> well, and, and you guys obviously work closely together on Star Talk. What was it that, you know, as early, even be- long before Cosmos, long before Star Talk, you were talking about, quote, blue-collar intellectuals, close quote, right. who maybe had more of a hunger for science than we gave them credit for, but nowhere to really get it. What tipped you off to that? So, <laughs> so this concept of a blue-collar intellectual, I haven't used the term, Lately, but mm-hmm. I remember using it often maybe five years ago. It's when I began to notice that, because look at what is my output. I'm on, I'm on this, you know, the Daily Show mm-hmm. every now and then or the Colbert uh, show. So not complete blowout things, just there, mm-hmm. visible, reliably. Right. Okay. So there it is. So now I meet someone in the street and they say, aren't you Tyson? I say, yes. <laughs> then I used to ask, well, how do you know me? Right. And some people, I read one of your books, but the majority said, I saw you on television. And it's not because they read my book. And if you read my books, that's one kind of person. If you don't see it, you just wait for the TV show. Then I look at them, I say, well, so where'd you go to school? And it turns out they only graduated high school. Mm -hmm. So these are people in service positions, typically. So it could be the wait staff or Mm -hmm. the... Probably garbage. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The sanitation person or the meter maid, or yep. you know, these are roles that you're not thinking college degree. And so, I remember walking down the street and a garbage truck pulled up, and the guy says, "Are you Tyson?" That's <laughs> weird when a garbage truck pulls up and just stops in front of you. <laughs> it's like, okay, what I do wrong? Is my body about to be removed from existence? <laughs> yeah, I said, wow, these people know about and care about this topic, and I. Dubbed them the blue-collar intellectuals. So these are people who, after high school, 
by whatever stroke of misfortune, didn't end up going to college. Right. So either they couldn't afford it, somebody got pregnant, they had to take over the family business, whatever. Yeah. And you were filling that need. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I think they're still out there. And these are people who don't read books, but they'll watch documentaries. Right. And they tend to be Nacho Discovery Channel junkies. Right. So your television persona really started, I guess, right, with Nova Origins, which you hosted, then Nova Science Now, which you hosted for four seasons. But it seems like the the game changer was the reboot of Cosmos, where you're now stepping into the shoes once occupied by Carl Sagan. How did that even come to fruition? And do you agree that that was the thing that that there was sort of a before and after as far as your public profile? No, because I can track it. You can track it quantitatively. Okay. How many people in a at what rate do people stop you in the street yeah. and want a selfie? Right. Okay. <laughs> or it's equivalent before right, selfies, which right, would have been an autograph. Right, right. So you can ask what rate is that? And I would say before Cosmos, I mean I remember watching it from the nineties onward. It started out maybe one a month, stranger in the street, and then two a week, mm -hmm. and then ten a week, then ten a day, <laughs> then fifty a day. And 100 a day. So that's kind of where it is right now in that range. But Cosmos didn't what, markedly kick it up a notch? It was up a notch, but the slope of the increase yeah. was about the same. It was okay. But it just raised it a little bit and then kept going. So you, you can ask, did Cosmos give this an up an upturn yeah. in the in the rise of, of a following? Not really. It was still, there's a steady rise in there all along because of the regular appearances on the nighttime talk shows and the right, books right. and the commentary because when the universe flinches, I get a call. Right. So you know what Cosmos did? It increased the number of people who want to attend a lecture that I give. Because they see, they got a sample of what it would be like. You got a sample, right. And how about generally in terms of the interest in, in scientific subject matter? Forget about you specifically. Do you, have, do you hear anecdotally that Cosmos was as big for this generation as it had been for the 1980. I, I haven't I haven't heard the latest on yeah. that. We, that's we want that to be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to the extent that it's not, we'd have to figure out why. If it isn't, it would only probably be because there's now not three channels but five hundred. Right. <laughs> so, but let's talk specifically about there were four channels. Fortune, okay, okay, right, PBS, of course, exactly. Star Talk, though, has had many incarnations in different formats, right? Yeah, it started as terrestrial radio, and then it went to podcast and terrestrial radio. Then it went to satellite radio and podcast. Then it jumped species, the largest ever, from radio to television. And what I didn't know at the time mm -hmm. was that that talk show was the first ever science talk show on television. When it went on. When, when it went on. And we didn't think about it that way, but we'd learn ultimately that it was. Yeah. And not just, and late night also. Late night. Yeah. It's got real competitors yeah. there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. But uh, what was the mission when it was still a radio show? Mission was, and it, and it retains, yeah. that while there are people who know they like science, what do you do about the people who don't know they like science? Right. Or the people who know they don't like science? Who's feeding them? So if I can get a celebrity who is the subject, and I find all the ways that science has touched their lives and their livelihoods, if I can find that, then I'm having a conversation with them about science. And their fan base, who follows them to wherever they go, 
are also having a conversation about science. And so that's why it's not just a Buzz Aldrin who's wonderful to have on a science program, but it's also, you know, Whoopi Goldberg. Yes. And Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton. And Secretary of Defense. Right. And William Shatner. Right. And are these guests coming about because you said, I want to go after that person, or Nachio's saying, you should try this person? It's all of the above. Yeah. Yeah, we'll check for compatibilities, but yeah, it's it's all of the above. And who was the most pleasant surprise as a guest in terms of what they brought to the table? I would say Biz Stone. For anyone who doesn't know who Biz Stone is, can you share? <laughs> He's the the founder of Twitter, co-founder of Twitter. Right. And just to hear him speak was, I'd never thought about Twitter that way. He was saying, you look at birds, and they're all minding their own business. All the birds are pecking away for food, and then something happens, and then they all flock together. And then when they're done, they land back down and go about their way. So he was saying the human species did not have a flocking mechanism, and now we do. It's Twitter. So there was a scientific angle of that yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know if he did it on purpose, right? but it was just a consequence of the fact. Oh, that's interesting. Just out of curiosity, why did the format, why do you pre-tape the interviews but then have certain aspects that are live in the studio? And Great, great question. It's just pragmatic. Yeah. So I get around a lot. Mm-hmm. And at the time the show began, we didn't have budget to fly people in and put mm-hmm. them overnight. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is wherever I was, if there was an opportunity to interview someone who was a celebrity of some type, I would then pull out my portable microphone and set up a recording. Because at that time, it's just a podcast. Not just, but it was a podcast. Uh, no, 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 no. Even no. when it was... No, a... I had a high-quality uh, microphone. Okay. So we use it for the radio as well. So now I have this big interview. Now we slice it and dice it to the parts that we can make interesting show out of. And that's where the real rubber hits the road. Mm-hmm. Just, again, uh, just a random question. What percentage of your time does Star Talk related stuff take up? I you got to be great at time management. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. Well... Or, or a mess, time <laughs> manager. One or the other. Uh, I would say 40% of my time. Really? Yeah. And what did that displace? That's a lot of your a lot of your time. Yeah, there. no. So what happens is it's not so much – it displaces it not in the way you might think. It yeah. just prolongs the finish date. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Forever, so, some of the other stuff. Yeah. So there, there are book deadlines and, and other deadlines, and I have to reply to inquiries. And this goes on and on. Social media, especially mm-hmm. Twitter, which we just were discussing, has has contributed to the overthrow of governments. It may have contributed to the election of a president in this country. <laughs> what convinced you that it was worth joining, and what is the value of having, as you do, s- more than 7 million followers? Yeah. So I remember tweeting initially because other people were doing it, and that was supposed to be the right thing to do. Right. And I then learned that not all tweets are created equal. So... <laughs> I used to tweet just sort of where I am, and, and like everybody else. Yeah. So I'm having a hot cheeseburger now. I'm going <laughs> to see a movie. It was a good movie. No, I just I said I'm an educator. Right. I have a higher goal than this. So I decided to educate. I, I decided to post just thoughts I'm having through the lens of an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. And I learned that people, most people may never be in the company of an actual scientist. Mm-hmm. So given that, why don't I share some of what I'm about with them, and they might absorb it. 
things like when you go and see Gravity, for instance, <laughs> <laughs> the movie. You had a, you couldn't help you. You had a few concerns about There's those. There's a few. And, and, and people said, oh, he hated the movie. Right. No, I never expressed an opinion. Right. I was just saying what they got wrong. Right. But it was, it was great. I think that might have been the first time I caught I oh, really? onto your Twitter okay. follow, and I love it. But what was your personal reaction as a scientist to the election of Donald Trump? It was, wow, there must be a lot of people who don't like the system. That, that's what I, I remember saying that to myself. And do you vote on what the best system is or do you give the system that people want? So we're an elective democracy. So as an educator, I want the voter to make an informed decision. If they don't make an informed decision, they still get to vote. Mm-hmm. So what I do as an educator is alert people of the causes and effects of their action or their inaction. So I will say, if you are okay with dropping the budget of the National Institutes of Health, by some percent, whatever right. it is. If you're okay with that, yeah. mm-hmm. do you know what they do right. in general? Right. Okay? Do you realize that this disease was cured because of monies that came that would not have been spent? Out? Do you know this? Mm-hmm. If you know this and you understand the consequence of it, because you may be alive because of research that came out of the mm-hmm. National Institutes of Health. If now you know all of this, you still want to vote to drop the money? Go right ahead. But, it's it's a it's a it's a democracy. And and in that statement that you've just made, it it is reflective of what I've read elsewhere and sort of observed, which is that you are not going to necessarily espouse your own political opinions about a candidate or a or an issue. My you, opinions are irrelevant. Except they the, should be irrelevant to you. But but let me ask you if that sure. just to play devil's advocate, and this uh-huh. actually, when there is one major political party that has basically said. We're essentially going to ignore accepted fact in science, Mm -hmm. climate change, Mm -hmm. evolution even. Now we've got the head of the EPA that is somebody that has prolifically sued the EPA, Mm -hmm. on and on. Does it become incumbent upon scientists to to drop the even-handedness and objectivity and and actually fight back? At what point do you feel that that, just to protect what you do, you have to, will will there be a time when scientists can't afford to, be as even-handed as as you've tried to what be. You say, what you're saying is, will the day, should the day come yeah. when scientists just choose sides? Right. That's what you're asking. Yeah. Here. Because there are no sides. There's only the objective truths of what science finds in the universe. Right. That's what science is. That's what it does. That's its only point. So 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. You beat Donald Trump over the head all you want. There's still, there's still the matter of the 60 million people who voted for him. Right. And as an educator, I'm thinking about the 60 million people. Yeah. Do they understand the full consequences of their decisions? If they don't, I will explore that with them. Right. And say, if you do this, this will not happen. Right. If you don't do that, this will happen. And we'll go through all these causes and effects. Then people vote however they want. Yeah. I will not tell you who to vote for. I have no interest in telling you who to vote for, nor do I care if you share my opinion of things. Governance is not so much about opinion as it is about what is for the greater good. Okay? And that ought to be something you can determine without asking, are you Democrat or Republican? So about climate change, if you deny climate change, you are in denial of emergent scientific truths, period. I don't care what your political party is. You're, you're in denial of science. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, 
What are the consequences of being in denial of science? Right. And you go down the list. Now, if you still want to be in denial of science, even after the list, okay. We live in a free country. Right. You could think how you want. You could say what you want. The problem comes about is that if you are in denial and you rise to power and you create legislation that has as its foundation gaps in your knowledge of science, that is the end of your democracy. Period. Well, Just give up. Isn't that slide away? Are we not approaching that? They don't know it. This is what I would assert. Yeah. They simply don't know it. Right. So it's a matter of education. It's not about beating people on the head. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with K through twelve is, I think, still, students are viewed as vessels. You unzip the head, pry it open, pour information right. into that volume. Zip it back up by the time you're a senior in high school, hand you the diploma and say you're now educated. When education should really be, how is your brain wired to figure stuff out, to process information, to analyze? But to your point, doesn't it, isn't it a little bit troubling when education can be manipulated to the extent that there are people that are in some states obligated to teach both evolution and creationism? So if you live in that state, yeah. so I will say. Yeah. By the way, education is local. It's not federal. Right. The fact that education is not mentioned in the Constitution means it's state level. Yeah. Right? By definition. So you could stack a school board with religious fundamentalists and teach whatever you want Mm -hmm. out of your holy book, whichever religion you want it to be. Okay. If what you teach is religion, but you're pretending it's science, when it's not, Mm -hmm. you have undermined the future attractiveness of your region for the next generation industries Mm -hmm. that will require science literacy on a level that will be fundamental to to how lucrative that industry may become. So I'll just say, you can do this, but... There's a price. There's a price. You're paying for it. The absence of business entering your state. Because tomorrow's businesses will thrive on innovations in science and technology. Right. That's what I say, and then I go home. <laughs> just sticking with a few other big picture, just your, if I can get a quick, mm-hmm. quick take on it, because I'm so interested. I know you were raised, I believe, Catholic, right? Yeah. What is your feeling about religion today? I don't have any feelings. Do you adhere to a religion? Can I ask if you, it's not too personal, do you oh. adhere to a religion? Oh, sure, uh, oh, sure. no, no, yeah. no, no. But do you, don't, you don't call yourself an atheist? Where do you get a definition of a word? You can look it up in the dictionary. Right. And a dictionary for atheist means a non-believer and a deity, whatever, something like that. And then, okay, fine. And then you have people who say they're atheists who behave in one way or another. And that's what people see as atheists. Mm-hmm. So then you say, what is an atheist? By asking people, they will describe someone that does not apply to me. That's why I don't use the title atheist, the label atheist. Gotcha. Because I will say... Godspeed to astronauts ready to go onto a spaceship. Okay? Cover your bases. No, it's just the tradition of space exploration that you say that when someone is putting their ass on a million pounds <laughs> right. of thrust. Right, right, okay? right. So I would say a third of the music that I own is religiously inspired. Really? My favorite musical on Broadway is Jesus Christ Superstar, mm-hmm. which I saw in first run <laughs> awesome. back in 1972. <laughs> That's awesome. Whenever that was, right. 71, I think it yeah, was. Yeah. And so. I tell this to people, and they say to me, I thought you were an atheist. 
therefore I'm not an atheist. <laughs> because definitions of words are not set by the dictionary. Dictionaries describe a word as it has come to be used. Interesting. And the way people now use the word, when they learn what I say and what I do, and they say, I thought you were an atheist, that means I'm not an atheist. <laughs> okay? That's, 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 that's all. If it was as simple as you don't adhere to a religion or any, any deity, mm -hmm. then sure. But that's not it. not it. And I'm tired of having people come running after me and say, I thought you were an atheist. <laughs> Shut up! Right. <laughs> so here's the thing. Right. Here's the thing. Let's remove all labels entirely and have a conversation with me about how I think. Then come up with a title. Got it. Because if you if you encounter someone, label them. Yeah. It's an intellectually lazy way to assert that you know information about them that they have yet to reveal to you. Gotcha. And it is and you lose the nuances, you lose the subtleties, you lose the full spectrum of how people think and behave in this world if all you're gonna do is pass around labels. Question that I cannot claim credit for coming mm -hmm. up with, but somebody asked and I thought it was an interesting one to pass along. You have endorsed the idea that there's probably a lot of extraterrestrial life out there, right? Given the, the size of the universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any any rational person looking at the data would arrive at that same conclusion. So it's not just me. No, 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 sure. Yeah. But but also knowing that these different worlds are so far apart in space and time that we'll probably never see or interact with them, do you think we are we would be wasting time or money by looking? Or is it uh, is it not more realistic to just sit back and hope that a more advanced species finds us? <laughs> so there are two things there. One of them yeah. is, will we go to another planet and find aliens and chat with them? Yes. <laughs> there is no pathway yeah. that exists from current technology and current science that will enable that. Yeah. We need wormholes for that. Mm -hmm. The distances are too far, as you said. Yeah. But they're not too far to send radio signals, which travel at the speed of light. And you say, hi, I'm here. <laughs> Actually, it wouldn't be good for witty repartee. Because let's say it's, they're 10 light years away. You right. send a signal. You might have it takes to wait. 10 light years to get there. And then their signal takes right. 10 years to back. Right. So you say, hi, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> how are you? Okay. Right. It's not <laughs> yeah. the most effective. But, right. It's just not. So, yes, we should still look. Because there might be some intelligence out there trying to speak to us. And we should participate the other way around which we kind of already are, the leaked TV signals from Earth have been leaving Earth since the beginning, yeah. the beginning of uh, radio and television, basically 80 years ago or right. so. And so the first signals that aliens will receive from humans... Will be that. Yeah. The, George like, Burns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, George Burns, the honeymooners, right. Right. I Love Lucy... Right. These, this is how they'll learn how well, men I dream women, of genie. <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> right. I dream of genie. Right. right. They uh, say, oh, they have genies on that right. planet. <laughs> now, when they it, have more powers than we do. Right, right. Yeah. When it comes to artificial intelligence, should we be excited, afraid, or com some combination of both? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what you should be. You keep trying to get me to tell you uh, what well, to what think. Well, what are you? What are you? It's not, I'm not a pundit okay, okay, requiring okay. that everyone no. have my views. This is not how Let I function. Re I, I retract the in question. The world. Rescind the question. I, how do you feel about it? Oh, that's different. Yes. Not how, do I, how I think other people feel. Right. Well, know how I feel? Okay. Oh, by the way, I'll tell you, <laughs> I had someone ask me, how do you feel about this, that, or the other? Mm -hmm. Stuff I never talk about. Yeah. So I said how I feel, and you know what the headline was? Tyson wants you to think this way. It's like, no, no. <laughs> okay, I am fearless of AI. Completely fearless. Yeah. Yeah. 
And why? Because let's let's say it gets really smart and it says it wants to like kill me. Yeah. Well, how is it going to kill me? What's it going to do? <laughs> right. Because I can pick up a shotgun and shoot it. Okay. <laughs> this America, Jack. <laughs> Robots that's coming after me. I'm shooting it. All right. And I can unplug it. I wipe its memory. I, I have. I don't know why people are afraid of this. There is a thread of events that you can imagine in which AI renders us as their pets mm -hmm. because they're just so much smarter than us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Mm -hmm. I can picture that. It would make a great science fiction film. Mm -hmm. But how real is it? That's right. my point. Right. What is most likely? And here's what's more likely. AI gets really smart, and we put it to task to find a cure for cancer. AI gets really smart, and we put it to task to figure out how to run traffic in a city. It gets really smart, and we have it drive all cars everywhere, mm -hmm. so no longer do 30,000 people a year die on the, on the highways. It's driving all cars. You know the fun part about self-driving cars is that if you want to change lanes, it tells the other cars it wants to change mm -hmm. lanes, and they open up a slot for you. You don't have to wonder whether they see you because yeah. it's, it's communicating way better than your senses can. So I see AI as being invoked in these bits and pieces to enhance our life. In just the same way, machines have been invoked historically to replace manual labor to improve our life. In the same way, computing has been invoked to enhance our life. But to say now AI is going to run everything and it's going to achieve consciousness when we don't even understand what consciousness is <laughs> and somehow we're going to wire a bot and have it achieve consciousness? I don't think so. <laughs> so I'm – so yeah, so I, I don't agree gotcha. <laughs> that it's something to fear. Last question, if I may. We are living at a time where on the one hand, you know, there's – Kardashian franchises of shows and things that are very popular on TV. Did you just say that? I, Kardashian I, franchises? I mean, there's all Did these those shows? words just come out of your mouth? I, I'm not happy about it, but I do believe it <laughs> Actually, people want it, and they're entertained, you know. But at the same time, the highest rated show on TV is The Big Bang Theory. Yes, it is. Just had a huge hit movie that was Hidden Figures. And the, before that, The Martian. And before that, The Martian and Interstellar was not as successful, but it was there. there's interest. You are very close to a household name and face, I would say, at this point. So do you take hope in the future of science and people's curiosity from things like that, part A? And part B, for you, as the guy who we all turn to if we have a question, I have to ask, what is the question that you most want answered? So I try not to have hope because hope is, when you really think about it, what you have when you have given up any expectation of influencing the result. <laughs> right. right. So they just have hope. Right. Hope and prayer go together in the same way. Mm -hmm. You don't pray that the sun will rise tomorrow. It's going to rise. Okay? Right. The things you pray for when you recognize you're not in control. You don't pray that the book is going to jump into your lap. You reach for the book and put it in your lap. You can control that. Mm -hmm. Okay? These are simple mm -hmm. cases, of course. I don't like having hope, but I have hope <laughs> in this particular case. Mm -hmm. I would say people 30 and under. How old are you? 31. 31. I'll include you. Just <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate 31. By the way, this year you will live your billionth second. Thank you. I'm yes. very excited. Okay. 30 and under, from my view, is the most scientifically literate demographic there ever was, ever. This is a population that has only known life with a smartphone, and they know firsthand that a smartphone uses technology, science, space, 
How else are you going to find grandma's house without GPS talking to you from orbit? You understand it. You took science in college and you liked it. Whether or not you wanted to become a scientist, mm -hmm. it's still there within you. You might even know some scientists. That generation voted differently from all other demographics out there. That generation is who populates Comic-Con. Crazy stuff at Comic-Con, fantasy stuff, but everybody knows the difference between science fantasy and science fact. The worst fight you get into is the, the, the power output of a, of a lightsaber in a bar fight, <laughs> okay? But yeah. they need real science to have that argument. Mm -hmm. So the problem is if you're 30 and under, you're just not old enough to run stuff yet. You're not CEO yet. You're not senators yet. You're too young. You're not old enough to be president. There are age limits on that. Mm -hmm. But I can't wait till you guys take charge because that's going to be a new world. And you are the guys who are driving not only the attendance at Comic-Con, but the attendance at these movies, these biopics, The Martian, all of these films. Uh, you know, the, the theory of everything, the imitation game. Go back a few years, you even get to the uh, beautiful mind mm -hmm. with uh, john nash the mathematician and this other one the man who knew infinity all of these movies oh my gosh somebody figured out you can make money off of science and if you could if artists can make money off of science producers mm -hmm. that mainstream science and for your generation science is mainstream that's the difference you're not looking at science as ooh you ooh who are you i don't i don't ooh it's like no give me some more of that That's what I want. So I have hope. And I'm just going to come back to part two only just because I've got to mm -hmm. wonder. what, what Part are you... two. I'm going to give you a cop-out answer. Okay? The question I want answered is the one we have yet to think of <laughs> because it will arise only after you have entered a new vista for having answered a previous question that you just posed. I gotta, I gotta process that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. I right. really so, appreciate yeah, it's, it. It's the question that you don't even know you're supposed to ask yet, awaiting a new place to stand for the discoveries that are underway right now. Awesome. That's the question that I sit at wake at night, looking up into the sky, wondering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Really well, appreciate th it. Thanks for having me.